You're listening to Talking Buildings, the podcast related to all things about the built environment. Here's your host, Paul Angus. Okay, today we're joined by Al Baxter. So, Al, let's hear a little bit about you. What's your elevator pitch? Hi, Paul. Great to be here with you. My elevator pitch at the moment is that I'm a senior principal and architect with Populous, and Populous is a sports and events architecture firm. We're a global firm that has offices all around the world, and I'm here in the Sydney office. Magical. So when we met at the Melbourne Cup a few weeks ago, it became apparent that when you take your glasses off, you are the ultimate Clark Kent, the Peter Parker, the Bruce Wayne of architecture. Perhaps you can elaborate what happens when you try and convince a Scotsman that you played a key role representing your country on the field and end up having to Google yourself to prove it's a true story. So who is the real Al Baxter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe not the real Al Baxter, but the old Al Baxter is a a rugby playing prop. So yeah, playing for the Wallabies and the Waratahs uh, between 1999 and 2011. I was a professional rugby player. And um, since that time, I've lost about 20 kilos. So often have a hard time convincing people that, yes, I was this person who once played in the front row internationally. Gosh, wow. You can still get recognised now? Randomly. So, yeah, sometimes, but um, other times, more often than not, I don't because I usually ran around with a beard, I had very short hair, and yeah. I was um, a lot bigger than I am now. Okay, wow. So being successful in two careers is a phenomenal achievement. But, however, you're in good company because when I Google people with two careers, up pop Arnie Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> he began his early days as Mr. Universe and then into movies, and then he got elected as governor of, of California. There you go. Right. And another sporting example is George Foreman. He's a heavyweight boxing champion and an Olympic gold medalist before launching his successful George Foreman Grill. So, as Australia's most capped rugby prop, is that still correct? No, at the oh. time when I retired, but no, I've been beaten by a couple of guys. Ah, okay. So, I find it fascinating that you've effectively had two awesome and completely different careers. So, I want, I want to sort of start with um, where your love of architecture came from. Was it at an early age? And how does one of the greatest sportsmen Australia has ever produced find time to train and pursue his ambition to become an architect during your rugby playing days. Yeah, it's interesting because I always wanted to be an architect before I thought I'd be a professional rugby player. So I was, yeah, so I was a kid at school who was good at art and maths Mm -hmm. and um, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do until one of our art teachers actually showed me an architecture book and this was in year 10 or year 11. I said, yep, that is exactly what I want to do. Yeah. I was playing a bit of rugby at the time, but certainly not top levels. I actually didn't play a representative game of rugby till I was about 21 or 22. So at school I was playing in the in the school's first 15, but certainly mm-hmm. not playing any rep stuff. Uh, yeah, it was showing this architecture book, loved it, and so I thought that's, that's what I want to do, that's what I want to be. So yeah. when I left school and started university, I was playing club rugby, but very much focused on becoming an architect. And then during oh, okay. the six years of my architecture course, yeah. I got to a point where I kept on climbing the ranks of, of club rugby and then mm-hmm. uh, sort of doing the rugby academies and other stuff until my final year became a, a final year of architecture, became a full-time professional rugby player. So it was, yeah. yeah, something where I fell into. And even then I thought, hey, I've got a two-year contract. I'll do my final year union. I'll, I'll bounce both of them, which was a killer of a year, but yeah. I got both done and then thought I'll do first year out of architecture, I'll play professional rugby, do a bit of part-time architecture and then, mm-hmm. look, I'll probably only have one professional contract so I'll just go back to being yeah. an architect. So I was lucky enough where I got four or five contracts after that and played 12 years as a, a rugby player and then was yeah. able to balance I had a, a really nice employer here in, uh-huh. in Cox Architecture in Sydney who said, yeah, happy for you to balance the both and yeah. so was doing um, – 
I think it was about half a day a week as an architect and the rest as a, a professional rugby player. And it, it was fantastic. It was really nice to be able to balance them both because both are, yeah. are passions of mine. For sure, yeah. It's a fantastic story. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's fun. Wow. I always thought it was the other way around. I thought you became, you know, you were a rugby star. Yeah, and yeah. And yeah. you did a backup plan to become a, an architect. No, my backup plan was rugby. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So having two degrees, one in science and yeah. the other in architecture, can you tell you my homework here? I understand the running joke with your teammates was that you don't Google it, you Baxter it. Is that right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so representing your club and country at the highest levels is what every young boy and girl dreams of. What advice would you give to any aspiring young athlete considering their future? And how important would you remind them to focus on education and their long-term goals? Yeah, education is massive. Look, one of the things is professional sport or elite sport sport can be all encompassing. Mm -hmm. And so you get, in some cases, institutionalized, but very much um, this myopic approach to what you're doing. And so to have a release or a leaf in something else is mm -hmm. hugely important in terms of mental health, but also in terms of being able to perform. It's being able to switch on and switch off is, mm -hmm. is really important. And also professional elite sport is so fickle that at any time you can be not selected, any time you can be injured, and so it is is really short. The average uh, length of a professional rugby playing career in Australia is about two and a half years. Is that right? So Yeah. So, oh. look, some go on and, and have long careers. Mm -hmm. Many uh, have one contract and then no other. Many have uh, one contract and they get injured and can't play again. So mm -hmm. desperately short in terms of a lifetime of, of professional sport is sometimes two and a half years compared to a lifetime, which is 80 years, is yeah. such a small blip. So, mm -hmm. um, look, one of the things in terms of that, so a, a backup plan, something else is massively important if mm -hmm. you're going to be, uh, if you're going down the direction of, of elite sport and professional sport. Yeah. But also one of the things, and that's important just for your own well-being, but also for simply putting bread, bread on the table. Um, but what I give, what I say to young kids who are going down this path is, mm -hmm. is um, enjoy it. Like you actually make a huge amount of sacrifices. Mm -hmm. um, as a professional elite sports person, I've missed any number of weddings and birthdays and mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff because I had to be training or overseas playing and training, which is a huge privilege. But also you uh -huh. forego a whole lot of other stuff. Oh, for sure. And if you don't enjoy it, then mm -hmm. it is an absolute chore. Mm -hmm. And I guess in anything, if you want to work hard at something, the yeah. more you enjoy it, the easier it is to work hard. So mm -hmm. uh, that's sometimes difficult to put in practice, but it's a lot about, I guess, being mindful of what you're doing. Why did you start playing in the first place? Because you yeah. like to hang out with mates. Well, fantastic. Be mindful of when you're playing even your top-level sport, you're hanging out with mates and, and doing what you love. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, trying to enjoy it and being mindful of enjoying it is something that I think is really important if you are aiming for upper levels because if you mm -hmm. do enjoy it and you know the reasons why you enjoy it, then you're so much happier to work hard and, and keep mm -hmm. training and do the really tough stuff, um, yeah. which is the difference between a, a, a good elite sports person and yeah. a professional or top level mm -hmm. um, elite sports person. Awesome. Do you actually do STEM, STEM talks at schools and trying to encourage people or trying to encourage students and um, you know, young people that come through. Yeah, and interesting. Look, I have at my old school, but certainly the more talks I give actually is to young professional elite sports people to okay. say, hey, make sure you keep studying. Yes. And, and also um, offer them practical solutions about how they can do Because not everyone is going to be an architect or a lawyer or a doctor or a profession mm -hmm. or an engineer. Uh, many people are going to have things which are, are not um, university-based or trade-based. And so mm -hmm. it's saying, hey, try and work out what you enjoy doing outside of your sport while you're playing sport because you yeah. have such a massive leg up 
and foot in the door to pretty much anything you want to do if you're yeah. a top sports person, certainly in Australia. So, mm-hmm. hey, if you enjoy um, cafes or cooking, then make it known to people. And yeah. when you're travelling, ask people, hey, look, this is a fantastic restaurant. Do you mind if I see back of house and have a chat to the, the chef? Or do you mind if I go and um, yeah. understand how it works? Because more often than not, people say, yeah, of course, I'd love you to come and have a chat. And, and, and in that way, by the time you finish in your professional sporting career, you have this wonderful backlog of knowledge or, or yeah. you have a really great idea of of if that indeed is what you want to do and mm-hmm. how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And does the club or does the league sort of support you in that, like as your future career? Yeah, massively. Yeah, yeah. So, look, it's been something that's, I think, rugby union coming from a, a, an amateur base um, as late as 1996 and then going professional in 96 was yeah. the, probably the first one in Australia to do it really well. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a rugby union um, players and training fund which essentially said if you if you want to do further study, if you want to do work experience, we'll assist you in that. Mm-hmm. And that um, certainly when I was playing, there was 70% of the players who actually were doing further study or, or work experience or something other than their rugby union career. And yeah, yeah. now most of the professional sports have picked it up and certainly Sport Australia and the AIS have picked up similar programs for their non-professional elite sports people. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome, yeah. So there must be a lot of synergies in terms of leadership and teamwork qualities on the pitch that you've also transferred successfully into the architectural studio. So can you give us a few examples? Yeah, definitely. It, look, it, most in, in the construction world in Australia or around the world is very much a, a team game. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't work, even if you're uh, the only architect on the project, you yeah. work with a whole lot of other professionals. You work with the client, you work with uh, approval bodies, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. you do have to work uh, as a team. So teamwork is really important and the teamwork um, that uh, certainly has been the best crossover areas has been things about knowing roles and responsibilities and, and clearly defining them. So the best teams have in sport will have clear roles and responsibilities for different team members. Mm-hmm. So in rugby union, like the, the prop does something totally different from the fullback. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, you look at football and the goalkeeper does something entirely different from the striker. And mm-hmm. it's also recognising that in teams outside of sport and saying, hey, we're all in this team here. Where And this is where one of the things where diversity in a team is fantastic and actually brings stronger teams by saying, hey, these diverse set of skills yeah. makes for a stronger team. If we all do exactly the same thing and have the same role and responsibility, then we're just going to beat heads and, and not mm-hmm. actually get the thing done. So, that look, that's a big one. Yeah. And the other one is around vision, So, uh, like having a vision. So it is mm-hmm. so much easier to motivate people yeah. uh, in the working world if there's a vision that, that people aspire to or, or fall in behind. And mm-hmm. for architecture it's quite easy because you've got this beautiful picture of a building or, or something that you want to, you're aspiring to complete. Yeah. Uh, and if you can get the whole team to buy into that vision, yeah. then, then people um, understand what they're working to and it's a whole lot easier to actually do the tough stuff, do the boring stuff, doing the annoying stuff if you yeah, know yeah. that you're actually contributing to, to creating this vision. Yeah, yeah. And do you do, were you involved in like team talks when you were, you know, in your rugby days? And do you still do team talks down in the studio or is that not? <laughs> well, it's, no, look, <laughs> like a rally it, call? It's, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, look, at, uh, in, in rugby pretty much every weekend before you played a game, everyone was involved in, in, in the team talks to motivate each other and ourselves yeah. to get onto the field. Um, it is a little bit different. There's less screaming, shouting and, and beating of lockers now <laughs> with, um, with architecture. <laughs> Going to some builders' offices, there's a little bit of that. But right. a lot of it is um, very similar in terms of you need to pick a good team and then mm-hmm. you need to motivate that team and you need to communicate with that team. And mm-hmm. um, that's done in the professional world as in the, the built professional world um, a little bit differently but many of the same principles that is in the sporting world. Yeah. 
So um, let's focus on your role as the senior principal architect at Populous. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you specialize in sports, conventions and exhibitions and master planning projects, both in Australia and Southeast Asia. So do you take pride in being involved in, and putting your stamp in designing stadiums and elite sports training facilities, both in Australia and Asia, and knowing from your point of view, what's most important from athletes, commentators, um, and also a fan's perspective as well? Yeah, look, I have really taken massive amounts of pride being part of projects with with Populous and previous employees mm-hmm. um, in the in the sports and event space. So um, yeah. most recently, Bankwest Stadium, which is now Combank Stadium, um, which is yeah. the old Parramatta Stadium, being part of that was, was being part of the team mm-hmm. uh, and and the group, not just the Populous team, but the wider team. Yeah. Um, when it got opened, was such a sense of pride being able to turn up there and seeing fans and teams enjoy this space that mm-hmm. you know you'd have hand in yeah. was something um which makes a whole lot of the hard work worthwhile yeah and and, and likewise with being involved with um new south wales rugby league training center and a couple of other training centers seeing teams come out of there and saying it's fantastic to be part of this building and then and winning um, yeah is it is really so satisfying yeah that's fantastic which stadiums has populace been involved in oh lots and lots around the world so yeah. uh, look the ones in australia i just mentioned um uh, Combank Stadium, the old Bankwest Stadium, Parramatta Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suncorp Stadium is another one. MCG is another. Yeah. Um, overseas, Wembley. Um, oh, really? Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So look at Big Global, the London Olympic Stadium, the Sydney Olympic Stadium. In New Zealand, it's the Forsyth Bar, which is the, the covered stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing Christchurch Stadium at the moment. Uh, Eden Park, we did the refurbishment there. Wellington. Yeah. Yeah. So we've done a whole lot of stadiums around the world. Wow. So it, look, it's a global firm and, and, yeah. and this is our specialty. So you'd hope we've done a fair few, but yeah. no, it's fantastic. I bet you're looking forward to getting out on a plane and going and seeing some of those stadiums as well. I am in particular. <laughs> um, the London Crews finished Tottenham, uh, when was it? It was probably about 18 months ago now, but because it's been locked down mostly because yeah. of COVID, um, uh-huh. it is absolutely fantastic. I, I was there during the build for Tottenham and oh, right. um, so saw what was going in, but never uh, unfortunately got to see it when it was filled with fans and finished. So I, uh, I can't wait to go back to London and see Tottenham in real life and full of fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking of stadiums, your passion on the playing field has naturally progressed into a world where you specialise in designing and building sports stadiums off the playing field. I understand you're involved in the construction of the main stadium for the 2022 Soccer World Cup Finals in Qatar. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was uh, when I was at at Cox Architecture in 2006, uh, Khalifa Stadium, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what it's called in Qatar, was designed for the Asian Games. And um, mm-hmm. so I was involved in that. It was one of the first stadiums I was involved in. And totally. it was, yeah, it was fantastic. It, look, a, a strange experience um, because of the cultural differences between what most Western countries would have in a stadium and what um, the country in the Middle East, like Qatar, yeah. has in the stadium. So they have a whole level, which is just for the royal family, which I found Get out of here. <laughs> really? So there is the best apartment in the, uh, so there, there's the, the, what we'd usually have as a members or a corporate hospitality level there, they yeah. have as a, a royal family level. And then in the middle of that, there is the most extraordinary royal apartment, which um, decked out like a fantastic five-star hotel suite so yeah it's pretty cool and then i guess the flip side of this is then at the time although this has been refurbished and improved but on the other side of the stadium was Mm -hmm. for migrant workers and others Mm -hmm. and so that was just bleachers with no roof and pretty much um just very basic level amenity because uh, obviously the price difference between 
what a migrant worker can afford and the royal family can afford in terms yeah. of tickets and things like that is entirely different. But uh -huh. it is. So it was fantastic introduction to working on stadiums, working on, on Khalifa Stadium. And, yeah. and then um, what was great to see is that was refurbished and upgraded for the 2022 World Cup. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, roof was put on both sides and there was far more amenity put on the the uh, opposite side of the royal uh, the royal box, although yeah. I'd love to see if the royal suite's still there. It's, well, it probably is. It's probably the, the FIFA president's suite or something. But Possibly. It, yeah, yeah. But, no, it, look, it was um, being able to be involved in that as a first point. Um, yeah. Really interesting it, it, because it also introduced me to the, the fantastic things about stadiums, which is extraordinary long span structures, amazing mm -hmm. cantilevers, um, fantastic use of um, fabric, huge internal spaces. So mm -hmm. you have these massive voids and, and and how to move tens of thousands of people uh, yeah. around the space in a very short time and in, in a safe way. So all mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff was a fantastic introduction to, to yeah. being involved in stadiums. Awesome. So what would you say are the key ingredients to make a good stadium? Ah. <laughs> And that could be from an architectural perspective yeah, yeah. or both from a playing perspective and an architectural uh, perspective. Look, for me, and I'm probably biased, but I think it's atmosphere, atmosphere, atmosphere. Oh, 100%. Uh, it yeah. is, yeah. So if um, the reason why you go to a stadium is to see live sport yeah. and the reason why you see live sport or why live sport is so fantastic is being part of the atmosphere. And mm -hmm. that atmosphere is not just the players on the, on the pitch. It is also how the crowd acts and moves and the noise of the crowd and the yeah, feeling yeah. when everyone rises as one when a goal scored or, or yeah, something. The roar, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you can enhance that, if you can play on that, then mm -hmm. that is what makes a fantastic stadium. So some of the, I guess, the best, atmos the best atmosphere in the world from some of the stadiums um, mm -hmm. come from stadiums that have really low levels of amenity. So mm -hmm. um, I think of Kings Park in Durban and um, Newlands in Cape Town. Now, mm -hmm. these are stadiums which were built in the 70s and 80s that essentially concrete boxes. There's no flash members areas or suites or anything mm -hmm. like that. They are really basic. But what they are is they are close to the ground, uh, yeah. as in the, the spectators are really close to the, the field of play. Yeah. They're really steep and fully enclosed, so you get this fantastic sense of enclosure and you oh. get a fantastic connection both as a player and as a spectator between the players and the spectators. So as a player yeah. you can feel almost the breath on the back of your neck of the, <laughs> of the spectators and vice versa. You can, yeah, yeah. You can hear when you're, when you're a spectator, you can hear the thumps and the groans of the, of the players and they make for just fantastic environments to, mm -hmm. to watch sport. And yeah. so for me, if you can replicate that uh, mm -hmm. in a stadium, be it whether it's a very luxurious stadium or even a, a, a very basic stadium, yeah. um, that's that's. 80 or 90% of the way there to oh, making yeah. a fantastic place. 100%, yeah, yeah. And does the same formula sort of work when you're looking at an international arena to a regional stadium or even a community sporting facility? Yeah, look, community sporting facilities are probably a little bit different, but mm -hmm. anything where you watch live sports and events, yeah. um, all those factors around atmosphere are incredibly important. So it's having a clear view of the pitch and feeling like you're really close to the pitch, having a sense of enclosure, having the acoustics work, so mm -hmm. the transfer of noise between the players and the fans and the fans to the players is important, it are all are all common um, from a, a community sporting ground up to a, um international arena. Mm -hmm. um, where you have community sporting events, though, is you also have – you bring in other factors where um, are less based on uh, the spectator and the and the uh, participant, mm -hmm. um, but more based simply on the participant because the uh, participant is such a larger part of the use of that ground. So yeah. if you have a community sporting area, 
a, a community sporting field or community sporting um, venue, then the most people that would be using it will be people actually playing. So to mm-hmm. ensure that the amenity of getting onto the field, okay, the accessibility of the ground, the the change rooms, the the uh, amenity of those people using it is yeah. therefore over and above those who are spectators because the spectators are often um, uh, a lesser component to the whole whole facility. Yeah, 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 I get you. So talking about talking about atmosphere, one of the one of the stadiums that I've been to with a fantastic atmosphere. Um, that I personally experienced was Anfield. Are you familiar with Anfield? I am. Liverpool? Look, I've never been there, but I'd love to go there, yeah. So I went to Liverpool Football Club and it was a testimonial match. It was yep. like early 2000s. And um, Liverpool were playing Celtic, Glasgow Celtic. And um, and the atmosphere and near the crowd, it was just electric. It's just like a cauldron, yeah. you know? And the whole crowd from both from both supporters were singing the song, You Never Walk Alone. Are you familiar oh, with that song? Fantastic, yeah. yeah it was yeah. brilliant. And it was just like, it just made the hair in the back of your neck stand up at edge. Yeah, and it was yeah. just fantastic. Is there a stadium from your days of playing in the World Cup that has left a lasting impression on you and why? Because you must have got around the world a little bit. Yeah, I did the count uh, a couple of years ago about how many stadiums I played at internationally and it was yeah. about 40 stadiums. So, 40? Um, so look, that that's uh, in terms of the amount of stadiums in the world, that's only a drop in the ocean. But yeah, I think yeah. it gives you a good cross-section of those fantastic stadiums around the world. Uh-huh. And internationally, the, the number one stadium for me was Millennium Stadium, Cardiff, but now Principality Stadium. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it, like 75,000 people who mm-hmm. are right on top of you. Uh, it, it's closed roof, so the sound just bounces around. Uh-huh. It's filled with the Welsh who love to sing. So yeah. you get out on the pitch <laughs> and... You can feel that the, the noise of their singing is so loud. You can feel the noise in your chest. Mm-hmm. It is that. It's like when you stand next to a massive speaker and you can feel the noise physically going through your body. Yeah, like the bass. Going yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. And yeah. so when you walk out into Millennium Stadium or Principality Stadium, as it's now known, yeah. you can physically feel the noise. And it was so loud that when we were playing internationals and we were mm-hmm. doing line-out calls and other calls, yeah. you couldn't actually hear the person next to you. So really? like a nightclub where you're screaming at someone and that the noise just doesn't get through. That was uh-huh. exactly the same. So we had to do hand signals because we could not hear that. And, oh, gosh. And um, that was – it was fantastic to play in that atmosphere because yeah. it just revved you up so much and, and you felt so connected to the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, crowd. And so I was lucky enough to play uh, World Cup games there but also just test matches against the Welsh there. Yeah. And every single time I played, yeah. uh, just amazing. And, and look, something close to that in Australia is Suncorp Stadium. So uh-huh. same deal, Suncorp Stadium Suncorp Stadium. Super close. Um, yeah. The spectators, uh, it's a cauldron uh, effect as well. And um, although it doesn't have a closed roof, it's still 55,000 people who are, you feel right on, or they feel right on top of you. And uh, it's just fantastic. I mean, and is that, does that intimidate you or does it encourage you um, or does it make you intensify you? Yeah, look, like- as, as a young player, when you haven't experienced much of it, yeah, it's pretty intimidating, especially where you go to uh, look the, the ones I mentioned before in South Africa, Kings Park and, mm-hmm. and um, Newlands. Yeah, the first time you go there and they're shouting pretty <laughs> vicious stuff at you as a player, it's, it's fairly intimidating. <laughs> and the, the South Africans are big people, so yeah, or generally big people. So there's some very big people screaming stuff on the sidelines, but uh-huh. um. As you play more and more around the world, you you realise that the the real buzz you get as a player in live sport is that connection with the crowd. So mm-hmm. um, even if they are shouting against you, just having that feeling of atmosphere, feeling that connection with with the crowd is fantastic. So you start loving those grounds and yeah. um, 
and it is, um, yeah, th- those uh, smaller ones, which are really close, you get that. But then also as soon as you get more than 80,000 people in the ground or 80,000 uh-huh. plus, you get it. So playing the MCG, um, playing Twickenham, playing at those larger grounds, yeah, um, yeah. even though they're not quite as close, just the pure mass of people is fantastic. And so yeah. you have a run out and hearing 80,000 people, 90,000 people mm-hmm. going Nazi is such a buzz. Yeah. Did you ever play at Muddyfield? Edinburgh? I did, yeah, did yeah. yeah. Once again, fantastic ground. Yeah, um, I've played there four or five times. I think most times there was snow on the pitch or snow on the edge <laughs> of the pitch, so the, the ground itself has got heating underneath it, but on the on the edges. So one time I was reserved there and, and sitting pretty much in the snow on the sides. Is so, that right? Yeah, yeah. But look, fantastic. Once again, Edinburgh, fantastic town to be part of. Yeah, fantastic when there's a test match there because the mm-hmm. whole town comes alive. Yeah, and um, yeah, wonderful atmosphere, great history to the ground, great history to the team. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely wonderful place to play. Yeah, yeah. And talk about intimidating, have you played against the All Blacks? They do that. that we yeah, played sport. lots against yeah. the All Blacks. Yeah. Once again, it's one of those, uh, I think I, I don't know how many times, but at least a dozen times against the All Blacks. And yeah. um, the first time you see the Harker, it's mm-hmm. pretty intimidating. Yeah, um, I bet it although, is. Although, yeah. actually, less than you'd think, though, because you are so revved up for a match. One of the things mm-hmm. you have to do before you play a game of rugby is actually try and calm down. Because mm-hmm. there's such pride to be yeah. able to pull a jersey on for your country, mm-hmm. to play with your teammates, to play for your family, yeah. uh, with your mates. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you're pretty G'd up, ready to go before a test match. So yeah. it's like if you're already angry and someone starts shouting at you, it just makes you angrier. Is that so, right? Yeah, yeah. So when when you're already ready to go and you're in the harker and, and yeah. someone starts the harker, it only actually <laughs> makes you angrier because you you really want to get and are you, into when it. You, when that's happening, are you looking at it in, all the, on their eyes? Or are you, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're, definitely. You're, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. It right you, back you to try and, yeah. yeah, so you try and look at your, your opposition player yeah. Um, and, yeah, you, you this, each this, other yeah, this is the person <laughs> I'm going to go against. Although um, one of the funny ones was, uh, look, they do the harker now um, yeah. fantastically well. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I started in uh, – Played my first international game in 2003. And yeah. at that time, they didn't do the same amount of practice as they do, do, oh, really? do now. So you'd often see some of the, the guys at the back. And I remember one test match with Andrew Mertens at the back, who, and he just butchered a harker. And it was, we actually had a laugh about it after the game. It's like, <laughs> mate, what were you doing? All these other people were doing something. You were doing a different thing. So oh, I was like, oh, no. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, if you look at the Harkers back in the 80s and 90s, it's a mm-hmm. whole different beast to what it is now. But, look, it's a fantastic tradition and love it. And, and yeah. of course, they're not the only country that does it. There's there's all the other Pacific Islands with with, with Fiji and Samoa and Tonga yeah, and others yeah, like yeah. that. And absolutely fantastic every time you see it. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm sure the healthy body, healthy mind's a key philosophy in your work ethic. So when I was searching for this interview, I found that you also quote it in a paper in the Sport and Society Journal back in 2017. It was a title itself that caught my eye and made me smile. It's entitled, Who Ate All the Pies? (laughs) (laughs) So the importance of food in the Australian sport and experience is of significant importance to you. So can you elaborate on the inspiration behind this paper, plus the observations and knowledge of recent Australian stadium redevelopments and the importance of healthy food? Yes, well, you've certainly done your research. A little known paper, Who Ate All the Pies? it is uh, yeah. It was about essentially the the paradox where Australians are generally massively healthy and Australians yeah. are generally um, who play sport even more so. Mm-hmm. But then when we go to stadiums in Australia, really, uh, and it's gotten far better now. But really, the the only food options were really low quality. Mm-hmm. Um, meat pie and chips, a hot dog and chips. Yeah, and not even a gourmet hot dog. It's literally a bit of white bread and a bit of processed meat and chips mm-hmm. and 
what was uh, this was with a couple of the the lecturers and an academic from um, Western Sydney University, and we were looking at why this is so and where that perhaps come from and future directions. And and uh, this was a, a few years back when we wrote it, but yeah. it was um, very much looking at how food courts in Australia had gone from really pie and chips and hot dogs and, and fish and chips to yeah. these extraordinary gourmet experiences as a model where mm-hmm. that's still fast food, it's still food for the masses, but it's food quality, which is so much above where yeah. it is now. And it's fantastic now to see venues in New South Wales who own most of the stadiums in New South Wales and, mm-hmm. and now getting people um, like the Maryvale Group on to do their, their food. And so you've got yeah. high-quality food, healthy food, mm-hmm. as options for people. And, and so really when you have a night out, most people think, or a day out, most people think, I'd love to have a, a, a great feed, a lovely drink and yeah. see something really fun. Mm-hmm. And um, and sport's been pretty slow in terms of actually getting that, uh, the food part of it um, yeah. as part of that experience. But it, it's now changing and it's great to see. And, and I think if Australia in its newer stadiums, which it looks to be doing, um, mm-hmm. can incorporate fantastic um, good quality, healthy food options um, yeah. for spectators, then it will only make the sporting experience so much better. Happy days. So you're ambassador for good food then. <laughs> That's right. Do you eat good food yourself? I eat plenty. Well, I I do eat good food. One of the interesting things out of that came out of the research was that sometimes mm-hmm. people actually like going to a stadium as a guilty pleasure. And so having a few guilty pleasures like yes. meat pie and chips yeah. is very much part of it. But you can still do good meat pie and chips as opposed to, and not necessarily that's particularly healthy, but good quality meat pie and chips as opposed mm-hmm. to Low quality. Uh, okay, cool. So my, rece- my research continues and I yes. discovered you did a TED Talk. <laughs> I did. How, when was that? Uh, would have been probably 2015. 2015? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. ages ago. Okay. So you were talking for about, about 15 minutes. Yeah. It was really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tool Indicate? Because you were quite proud of this tool and you, you're banging the drum on this. So it'd yeah. be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, really proud. And, and I guess the spoiler alert is unfortunately it hasn't progressed because of a whole number of factors. But but this was about the inherent triple bottom line sustainability of mm-hmm. community sports venues. So mm-hmm. we at the time, um, once again, with Cox Architecture, um, I was working with back in uh, the early 2010s, um, We were doing work for councils and when they had to make a business case for sports and events, community sports facilities, Mm -hmm. it was actually really difficult because all the the parameters they had Mm -hmm. were led by the pure financial ones. So Mm -hmm. um, in their words, it was way easier for them to get a car park approved than it was to get a community sports facility. And I believe that's changed now. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you start actually diving in though and saying, hey, there's way more factors to what makes a community sports facility or venue or or field valuable Mm -hmm. than just the financial ones, they should be pronounced in in these business cases, in these feasibility studies. So Indicate was all about that, looking at the, the triple bottom line impact of a community sports um, venue and that was around mm-hmm. the um, economic sustainability, the social sustainability, and the, and the environmental sustainability yeah. of these. And and then looking at uh, indicate is spelt with an eight, and the eight was very much there was eight factors in each mm-hmm. of those um, three areas um, to look at, and then those were then um, compared against others, and that was a way hopefully to indicate to people where their venue sat in those three things. Yeah. After I left and, and went to Populous, unfortunately. 
there was a change of personnel in, in a whole lot of areas uh, who were working on the tool and yeah. I believe it hasn't progressed much, which is really sad because it was it was such a fantastic thing to be part of and uh -huh. it was really interesting to be able to show the massive value that community sports uh, venues yeah. can give as compared to things like car parks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you still get in involved in some research now with like universities or whatnot? Yeah, yeah. and look, it, it comes and goes depending on projects mm -hmm. and uh, project loads and things like that. But it was doing a bit, obviously, Western Sydney University with who had all the pies. I uh, was yeah. doing a bit there mm -hmm. with their actually sports management school, but they were looking at some of the inherent factors behind sports mm -hmm. and events, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we do stuff with the University of Queensland and others around Australia. But yeah, look, yeah, yeah. it's one of those ones where I can't say I do it all the time, but certainly yeah. when it comes along... Um, uh, it, it's fun to be part of. Yeah, yeah, okay. So does your competitive edge from your days in the field transfer to the drawing board to win, create and transpire the development <laughs> of a new stadium or building? It does, unfortunately. So <laughs> when we go for tenders, I get a bit over-competitive, I think. So, really? Yeah, it, it's, um, uh, look, to be a professional elite sports person, you have to be naturally competitive. Mm -hmm. and so um, whenever I'm pitted against well, when my team or, or the people I'm with are pitted against other teams, mm -hmm. I find myself, unfortunately, getting a bit overly competitive. So <laughs> it's, um, Can you give us an example of what you mean? Oh, it's just uh, like you end up focusing a bit too much on the opposition when you're going, right, we've got this tender, we need to beat these others. And it's like, no, 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 it's not beating <laughs> others. I get told by the, the bids team, no, 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 it's just we put a best foot forward and don't worry, no, no, we... It's, anyway, I won't go on, but it's, um, <laughs> it is... Uh, so I find myself sometimes those cases have to pull back a bit okay this is all about us yeah, yeah. thanks for a call Chayla. yeah yeah, yeah that's right and <laughs> um, from a building services perspective what would you say are the top three most important aspects to consider when collaborating with the design team on a stadium or sporting complex yeah uh, look i think it's about collaborating early and mm -hmm. recognizing that everyone has these fantastic roles and responsibilities and everyone uh, professional and their opinion should be valued. Yeah. Um, so one of the fantastic things about doing, once again, Combank Stadium coming to that was really early on um, and Lend-Lease were our client there because they, they were the ones who uh, had the commission to build it mm -hmm. under them, but they were really keen on collaboration from day one and that meant yeah. actually getting us all part of the pro uh, the whole design team and this was the engineers the architects yeah. but even importantly it was people like the steel fabricators mm -hmm. in the same office from day one and yeah. it was such a fantastic experience where mm -hmm. i was literally sitting next to an engineer and the engineer was sitting next to a fabricator and yeah. we were talking about steel details mm -hmm. details um, on day one and we were resolving things which would normally take weeks and weeks of back and forth yeah in a matter of hours yeah. and that open collaboration where each of those groups brought their expert opinion to the table was such a fantastic way to work. Yeah. And so now in working on projects, it's all about getting the different disciplines who make up um, mm -hmm. the creation of buildings in the same room. And if, if that's also the, if you can get a contractor on board early, yeah. um, Lend Lease were fantastic in terms of saying this is what's buildable, this is what's not. This mm -hmm. is um, things like, hey, if we do steel section to a certain size, it means we don't have to close a single road, which mm -hmm. means it is so much better for local residents, it's so much quicker and cheaper yeah, and yeah. easier. And that kind of stuff then said, okay, well, we need to do a building grid size which can accommodate that size uh, that mm -hmm. fits on the, uh, on the um back of a truck so all that kind of in-depth input right at the start it just yeah, yeah. makes for such a better and richer 
built outcome at the end. Okay, cool. I was expecting you. I was. I kind of thought you were going to say something like audiovisual, your lighting, or you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Look, all all of that is important. But yeah. even once again, it, yeah. it's working with the experts in that field because look, architect knows a tiny bit about just about everything. Yeah, yeah. But not a huge amount about any one subject. And oh, okay. so we know yeah, it needs AV, and we've seen some pretty cool AV. But mm-hmm. to then get people in the room who are experts in that field is just really amazing and they yeah, start yeah. doing that stuff and then being able to get them early enough in that it's not just not a tokenistic add-on at the end but it's actually integrated to the design and, and so it's that kind of stuff where when you can get those kinds of inputs uh, it really leaves then enough freedom for the architect to to work on okay well how can we maximize atmosphere here how can you yeah. max- maximize the sense of enclosure because i know all the rest of the stuff is sorted yeah 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 i mean just talking about collaboration i've i've worked on a project it's one of, one of the schools here for schools infrastructure yeah. done the whole project by teams, yeah, as, wow. as, as people that I've never even met, you know, I've never met the architect, I've never met the project <laughs> managers, only by, by teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It, it is, and yeah. that's, the, I guess, the um, what COVID has done is changed the way we work. And it, it's Look, I think there has been, um, it's enabled far quicker collaboration, which is fantastic, so you don't have to fly all the way across the world to, mm-hmm. to uh, meet experts. But it's then that um, I think it has slowed down the process in other areas where you can't sit next to the person, see what they're drawing on the table and yeah, give yeah. that immediate input. But yeah. it, it's been fascinating. Yeah, to, to, I guess literally two years ago, architects were saying, no, we can never do a building that we don't actually have people in the same room and do yeah. design charrettes in the room. And uh-huh. that's proven that you can do that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So go from collaboration to inspiration. Yes. So... On my research that I was doing for this, I was looking for something to lead into this question. So I read an interesting fact in preparation for this conversation. So I was reading about Paul Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Williams. No, I'm not. So he was uh, an African-American architect. And did you know that he learned to draw upside down so he could sit across from clients as back in the 1920s, because of the color of his skin, he couldn't sit next to the client. So it's exactly what you're talking about with collaboration, sitting side by side, but he had to sit opposite and yeah. draw upside down, and he had that ability. So anyway, Paul wanted to prove himself that he deserved a place in the world, and he went on to win numerous awards and design houses for clients such as Frank Sinatra and Lucille Ball. And these were all built in neighborhoods that he wasn't even allowed to, to sort of live, live in or go to. Anyway, while studying, or even now, is there an architect, a theme, or a period, or even another individual who aspires you, Al? Yeah, well, look, I guess there's two in terms of uh, the inspiration. One was um, Australian architect down in Melbourne, Sean Godsell, who mm-hmm. um, does beautiful buildings, modernist buildings, um, lovely facades. Lovely. He wraps his, uh, mostly resi stuff, Matt wrap, wraps his buildings using some form of screening. Yeah. And um, he was actually a, a professional AFL player for a very short time. Oh, okay. So that was someone who I saw, and so a few years older than me, but I saw had started in the sporting world and then yeah. went on to a really successful um, architecture, uh, architecture degree and architecture career yeah. and, and one which wasn't tokenistic was actually fantastic buildings and wonderful yeah. buildings. So that from a, a, I guess, a person to look up to was an inspiration. But then um, coming through university, I just love the work of Renzo Piano. So Renzo Piano is an Italian mm-hmm. architect and has a fantastic response to place. So mm-hmm. uh, in Sydney has done Aurora Place, which responds to the Sydney Opera House and the sales of Sydney Opera House. But it, all around the world, his buildings yeah. are a fantastic response to place. And so for me, that was an architectural inspiration about mm-hmm. someone who did buildings globally, which is why I always wanted to work around the world. Yeah. Um, but they responded really sympathetically mm-hmm. to those places in which they built. 
Okay. That's that's lovely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we go into this section? Are you okay? No, I think I'm all good. Nothing. Want you promote or anything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got no sponsors anymore to uh, to promote. So. Okay. Done deal. <laughs> Alrighty. So when we started this segment, we were chatting about how we first met and you Googled yourself to show me a photograph of you in your rugby playing days. Well, Al, you're now in for a treat as this is the fun round and we're going to do a deep dive into the most asked questions on Google on the subject, Al Baxter. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, quick fire round. Yeah. What is Al Baxter's nickname and why? I uh, had two. One you've already mentioned, Google. Um, that was later <laughs> in my career when a whole lot of young guys came through and, uh, yeah, I could tell them a few things. And then yeah. the other one I started was actually Super Al. You mentioned Super it at the start Al. as well. I Because I wear glasses and had a little curl at the front of, uh, okay. front of my the hair. Okay, curl, yeah. yeah. And so um, when I first turned up to rugby, Brendan Cannon, saw my little curl out front and said, yeah. you just look like Superman. And when you take glass off, you're Clark Kent, so I'm going to call you Super Owl. So I got nice. my name Super Owl. And was, was Skippy there? Skippy? No, not the name no. Skippy. Um, what's some, the other one, George Gregan used to call me Renzo because once Renzo. again said, oh, who, who the architects you like? And one of them was Renzo and said, yeah. right, you're Renzo from now on. That's so, it. Yeah, it just yeah. stuck. Who is Al Baxter's most respected rugby opponent and why? Uh, look, it'd probably have to be Martin Johnson, as much as it kills me to name an Englishman as a respected rugby <laughs> opponent. Yeah. Um, he was an extraordinary captain, led by example, and probably one of the hardest men I've ever played rugby against. So Is that right? I remember in the 2003 World Cup final, I absolutely belted him to clean out. And it had a running start, smashed mm-hmm. into him, and it felt like it never even touched the side. So it's, it's just got up and shook it off. So, yeah, he, he'd be one of those. And, look, another one is Kevin Mialamu, um, mm-hmm. the ex-all-black uh, hooker, and mm-hmm. he was just like a fantastic player and just such a nice guy off the field. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. What is Al Baxter's best rugby memory? Oh, look, and I know what your next question is, what's my worst rugby memory? And these, <laughs> these, are, these are actually one and the same. Oh, are they? The, the 2003 World Cup final. It, it was such, What's this? Uh, so 2003 World Cup final in, in Sydney. We were playing against England. Mm-hmm. It was such a fantastic game to be part of. This was uh, a home World Cup. It was yeah. the first year I was playing international rugby. Yeah. Um, I was starting in the World Cup final and, uh, like, just a fantastic game. It, it was uh, – <laughs> Sportsmen use it too much, an honour and privilege. But it was an honour and privilege to be part of that game. Yeah. Uh, it was an amazing game, went into extra overtime. And um, the the best memory was, I guess, leading up to the Johnny Wilkinson kick and then the worst memory is from the Johnny Wilkinson kick onwards where, unfortunately, we lost the World Cup final oh. in front of a home crowd. But, oh, no. Um, but, look, it was amazing. That whole 2003 World Cup was such a fantastic period to be part of. And, mm-hmm. that, and that game, as the pinnacle of that, was amazing. Was it? We should be proud. What is Al Baxter doing now? Ah, architecture. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, look, architecture and surfing and swimming and, and coaching kids and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, cool. This is, this is the best one because this is the first one that came up when I, when I Googled your name. <laughs> Is Al Baxter married? Yes, I am. I've got a <laughs> wonderful wife and three boys. I'm actually married to an architect. So, Are you really? Yeah, yeah. So she's an architect as well. Um, Jen is her name. And, yeah, we, yeah. Um, we're here in Sydney with three boys and remarkably don't speak much about architecture because we both work in it. So, Quite, but, uh, yeah, That's a way forward. Fantastic. Yeah. 
What is Al Baxter's legacy to the game of rugby? Mm. Oh, well, look, I hope it's actually around that you can do more than just rugby when you play. So mm-hmm. I'd love to think that it shows others that you can still work or if not doing massive amounts of work, you can still do something else other than your rugby while you're a full-time professional or full-time elite sports person. Good answer. Is Al Baxter a qualified architect? I am. I'm registered. I think Ooh. my registration number is 9162, the New South Wales Board of Architects. So you know it off the top of your head. I don't well, you've got to <laughs> fill it out in a few forms. <laughs> Is Al Baxter involved in coaching? Yes and no. So nothing at the senior levels, but I have three boys who are now 16, 14, 12, so I help out with their teams that they're Mm -hmm. in. Um, I was helping out with my youngest son for a while, but he totally ignored absolutely everything I said as a coach. (laughs) (laughs) Literally said one day, Dad, what would you know? So I do bits and pieces around that school's coaching, Um, sometimes help out with Waratahs and other bits and pieces, but few and far between. But, yeah, mostly kids coaching. Awesome. What is Al Baxter's full name? <laughs> yes, I've got a very long name. It's Alastair Kenneth Ewan Baxter. So um, I've got strong Scottish heritage. I was going to say. So, yes. So um, they're all, so one side of my family is Mars, which are part of the, I think, Macmillan clan. And the Baxters are, yeah. I know they're in the, just above Edinburgh near Perthshire, but it's, um, but uh, yeah, so I had a very Scottish uh, grandfather in Ewan. And mm-hmm. My father's name is Ken, which is also Scottish. And so, yeah. So when I go to Scotland, when I did play in Scotland, they'd go, right, we see your full name and, oh, my God, you're half Scottish. <laughs> this is a funny one because there, apparently there is, a, a, you got someone, it's a doppelganger to you, kind of Al Baxter wrestle. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic if there is someone called Al Baxter who can wrestle. Do you and know there, there is a famous one, an Al Baxter in America. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a wrestler. He's a wrestler. Yeah, awesome. Straight up. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> what is Al Baxter's zodiac sign? It is Aquarius, but mm. if you told me what that meant, I would not have a clue. I mean, neither. What colour of eyes does Al Baxter have? Oh, uh, so I've got one of these funny sort of blue, green, brown eyes. So depending on what I'm wearing, they sort of... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So You've got chameleon eyes. Have you chameleon eyes. Well, yeah. I think they start on the outside, they're green, and they go to the inside where they're browns. All right. How interesting. Yes. Does Al Baxter have a degree? Yes, I do. I've got two. Architecture and Ooh. science. There you go, hey? A degree in science. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I had to do, so back in my day, in the mm. olden days when I did my degree, you had to do a undergrad degree before you could do your architecture degree. Oh, okay. So I did yep. a, a Bachelor of Science right, majoring right. in architecture. Yeah, yeah. Up it is. How many famous owls can Al Baxter name? <laughs> <laughs> Not many. Uh, Al Gore, which is topical at the moment, the COP26. Um, Al Pacino, the actor. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I even thought of Al Bundy. So our pundy from Married with Children. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where I start running out. Does Fat Albert <laughs> count as an owl? <laughs> Not many. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, how many tests did Al Baxter play? Yes, I played 69 tests for my country. Mm. And how many tries did he score? <laughs> I scored one try. Woo! So on my 50th test. Did so you really? I did. Yeah. And I scored one try in my career for the Waratahs on my 100th test. Uh-huh. And I scored one try for my club in first grade, Northern Suburbs. So Get out I, always, of uh, I didn't want to be greedy. I scored my one try and that was enough for me. I've tasted that and yeah, yeah. move on. And you left it for special occasions as well. That's right. You 50 know, and 100, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. And how many World Cups did Al Baxter play in? I played in two, the 03 World Cup and 07 World Cup. And where were they? Uh, it was in Australia for 03 and mm-hmm. then France in 07. Oh, and okay. Absolutely fantastic. The French World Cup, although we got knocked out 
in the quarterfinals was mm-hmm. such a fantastic experience. Yeah. We were travelling around France for, I think, we were there for about five or six weeks and it was just amazing. Such a beautiful country and, and they hold sporting events very well. It's tremendous. And finally, does Al Baxter have a ritual or a superstition before a game? No, I don't. I often get asked this question. I wish I, I had something pithy to say, but no, I, I, I don't. There was plenty of people who did. Yeah. I know um, Sterling Mortlock, who a player I played with for a while, actually wore the same red underpants to every game, which were just <laughs> foul by the time really? I started. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> full of holes and brown. Even though he washed them, they were, they were just disgusting. And then Rocky Elson, another guy I played with, he used to clean his teeth moments before he ran on the field. Um, so, yeah, a few guys had these superstitions. He wiped to brush his teeth before he went on? Just before he went on. For really? Whatever reason reason that seemed to work for him. So. Like what, in a tunnel or are you talking back in the no, change no, room? No, no, literally or? just in the change room. Yeah. We, we'd come in after the warm-up and um, you'd be all gathering to the final few words from the captain before you run on and there's Rocky Elsom in the bathroom cleaning his teeth. So. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Awesome. Well, on that note, I just wanted to say thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed yourself and we'll, we finished our little bit of fun. So next time you want to Google yourself, you'll, everyone will know the answers. <laughs> oh, thank you, Paul. It's been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much, Al. You've been listening to Talking Buildings, a Sipsy Australia and New Zealand production. You can download previous episodes or subscribe to future ones by searching Sipsy Talking Buildings. That's C-I-B-S-E on your favourite podcast app.